0: Well, imagine how you would feel if just moments uh, ago or hours ago you found out that your favorite team just won the Super Bowl. Um, that's not exactly the case, but Shankar, brother Shankar's uh, just found out hours ago India beat Pakistan in the Cricket World Cup. So he is quite ecstatic. Now, realize that India did not win the Cricket World Cup, but he really doesn't care. As long as they beat Pakistan, everything is okay. So uh, you stayed. It started at 10:30. You stayed up to about three, which is about halftime, um, and then went to bed. And then found out this morning when the game ended about seven that they had won. There's no way that would ever work in America. A nine-hour game. There's just no way. Um, but it, it, it works there anyway. That's not what we're preaching on, and you should be glad. Uh, uh, First Kings, uh, if you want to turn there. 1 Kings chapter 12 is where we will be together this morning. We have been going through the Old Testament in a trek together. Um, and we've been doing it at a, at a different pace than you. we might say go through an epistle. Um, in fact, maybe a different pace we go through some of these other books in a different way. Here's why. I want to be... I know I've reminded you of this before, but i remind you again. Our goal is we want to go through the Old Testament. And again, it's now about a year that we've been at this, uh, maybe a little longer. But uh, we want to go through the Old Testament in such a way that I'm, I'm praying that if, if you've uh, never walked through the Bible from beginning to end, and you aren't convinced that it is a single, solid, unified story that you will when this whole thing is said and done. I want us to not think of the Bible as bifurcated, as there's this New Testament stuff and this Old Testament stuff, and you got these stories over here and these stories over here. I want us to see it as the Word of God, the story of God working through human history as He ordained from the beginning with one solid effort, with one solid view toward the redemption of mankind. So that that's what we're after. I'm hoping we're seeing that. I say all that because we're biting off on ten chapters of first kings. I'm the one that decided this and I was very upset with myself this week for making that decision. Uh, I kept going to each chapter going, this deserves three sermons in itself. Um, and somehow we're going to mix all together. But I, so I say all of that upfront stuff. As much to you as for me to remind myself, why did I do something this crazy? I'm hoping, though, when we're done with these 10 chapters together in the next three hours, that you will be edified by it. All right. Um, Well, all that said, anytime we open up the Word of God, I say we go before the Lord. Let's ask for help. It's serious business. It's a great, great privilege to open the Word together. So let's ask for His help. May He lead us in that. Father, this is a treat. It is a treat to be with Your people. It is an amazing treat to open Your Word. I pray we will never get over the fact that You have spoken to us. God, we do not deserve to hear from You. You would be fully just to have remained silent forever. And yet, You have been kind to speak. You've given us Your Word. I'm surrounded with brothers and sisters here who can read. That's so, so amazing when you think of the whole global context and so few people can even read. And yet, You've allowed us to come together with printed Word in hand, the ability to read and to hear Your Word. God, thank You. And so now, God, I pray that You would speak. I pray that Your Word would go forth. I pray that You will bring, Lord, fruit. I'm praying, God, for for those who are teetering on the life between living in idolatry and living faithfully, that You will awaken them by Your Word this morning and show them there is no other option if you want to live. You've got to follow God. So Father, I pray for that. I pray Your Word and Your Spirit would do that this morning. God, I pray that the name of Christ our Savior would be heralded, loved, adored, treasured, hoped in this morning from our time in Your Word. We ask that, Lord. We ask all these things to You, Father. We thank You for Christ. We now ask that You would apply these things by Your Spirit. Amen. All right, well, when it, uh, when it comes uh, to describing behavior, we often talk about this in terms of conditional statements. So as a parent of a toddler, uh, I spend uh, quite a bit of time making conditional statements, such as, if you go potty, you could get some candy. Um, or if you don't pick up your blocks, you're going to get a spanking. Um, Understanding the importance of conditional statements is actually really key to understanding the biblical story. It's a major part of the biblical story. Yet, these conditional statements are more than just conditional statements in the Scriptures because they are uttered by God. And because they're uttered by God who can ensure the future, they are actually conditional promises. So I don't make conditional promises uh, to my son. I make conditional statements because I can't ensure the future. In fact, there's been a time or two I've said things like, if you go potty, you'll get candy. And he has successfully carried out the exercise of the potty. And I found out we're out of candy and chaos has ensued. Right. I made a conditional statement and uh, I was not able to fulfill it. God has never uttered a statement that He cannot and has not fulfilled. When He gives a conditional promise, it will happen. And this is a big part of the Scripture. So in the very opening chapter of the Bible, in the very opening drama, God says this to Adam, and you remember this in chapter 1. If you eat of this tree, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will die. It's a conditional promise. Adam, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Two chapters later, Adam does what? eats of the tree. A few chapters after that, what happens to Adam? He dies. It's a conditional promise. God made it. He did exactly what He said He was going to do. Now, a few weeks ago, Brother Mark preached for us the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, and we looked at the incredibly sad decline of Solomon's life and what happened there. Solomon, twice God came to Solomon with conditional promises. Twice He told him what would happen. This is recorded in chapter 3, it's recorded again in chapter 9. So I want us to start by looking at this in chapter 9 together. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. And the Lord said to him, If you walk before me... So there's the if. Does everybody catch that? That's part of a conditional. That's what gets you an antecedent and a consequent. If you walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart, in uprightness, doing according uh, to all that I have commanded you, and you keep my statutes and my rule. That's the antecedent. Here's a consequent. Verse 5. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Conditional promise. If then. Keeps going. But if... You turn aside from from following Me, you or your children, and do not keep My commandments and My statutes that I have set before you. But go and serve other gods and worship them. That's the antecedent. Consequent. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. In the house that I have consecrated for My name, I will cast out of My sight. And Israel will become a proverb, a byword among the people. In the house that speaking of the temple, will become a heap of ruins. Could not be more clear. If you obey me, if you obey me, you will be not just blessed, but incredibly blessed. If you disobey me, then you will reap devastation, destruction, and death. Sadly, shockingly, Solomon hears that and disobeys. Friends, this is a clear biblical principle. You can write this down. If we obey God, we will live and be satisfied. If we disobey, we will suffer and die. It's a biblical principle. It goes from the very beginning all the way across the pages of Scripture. If we obey God, we will live and be satisfied. If we disobey, we will suffer and we will die. God made a promise to Solomon. God fulfilled His promise to Solomon. He split the kingdom. He told Solomon, it's going to happen if you disobey. It's exactly what He does. In chapter 11, in verse 11, this is what He says to Solomon. Since this has been your practice... And And you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you. I'm going to give it to one of your servants. Solomon dies. His son, Rehoboam, becomes king. Solomon has a servant named Jeroboam. And within just a little bit, Jeroboam is pushing at Rehoboam for the kingship. Now let me tell you. When it comes to Jeroboam and Rehoboam, we're going to be uh, Jeroboam fans around here. Why? Rehoboam is white-collar, Ivy League, pedigree, everything-handed-to-him type of guy. Grew up in the castle, had everything he ever wanted, whiner, complainer, that's him. Jeroboam, he's a blue-collar, hard-working, pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, leader He will get in there and He will do it. We would like Jeroboam. Let me give you an example of this. When faced with the kingdom splitting, Rehoboam has the opportunity to come and give a speech to the people and ensure them that they should keep and stay with Him. (laughs) This is his speech. My Father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My Father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So as you can imagine, that didn't go over real well. Uh, that sort of helped Jeroboam uh, take the kingship. And sure enough, Jeroboam takes ten out of the twelve tribes. And they, he takes the northern part of the kingdom. And Rehoboam is left with two of the twelve in the southern Part of the kingdom. And at this point in the history of Israel, this is about 930 BC, the history of Israel is split. You have a northern kingdom called Israel, oftentimes referred to in the scriptures by their capital, Samaria, and you have a southern kingdom called uh, Judah, oftentimes referred to by its capital, Jerusalem, a split kingdom. And so, by the way, if you're reading through our reading plan, which uh, we've got other copies out there to get you through the Bible in a year. Check our website every morning at 5.30 sharp. You will get a new uh, reading assignment for the day. You will find yourself right now reading in Chronicles, and you, what you begin to see happening is the following. Every time you get ready to read something, it will say, Such and such king who became king in, the, in Israel the so and so many years after king of Judah, or vice versa. So it's always telling you who the king of Israel is and the king of Judah. Now I tell you that, because the first time I ever read through the Bible uh, all the way through, I was confused as a termite and a yo-yo. Uh, I have no idea what that saying means. My father-in-law says a long time, uh, all the time. But anyway, I was confused as I could be that what in the world is it talking? about whose king is what? That's what's going on. Uh, so it's split, the kingdom is split. Jeroboam, hard-working guy, God had told him he was going to do this. He told him he would get the kingship. And God gave him a conditional as well. In chapter 11, God tells this to Jeroboam. And if you will listen to all that I command, and will walk in my ways, and do what's right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, servant did. That's the antecedent. If you do all this, here's a consequent. I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. If you obey, I will bless. But like Solomon, Jeroboam chose to disobey God and in so doing he brought on horrific Calamity for him and for the rest of his family. At the end of chapter 12, we read Jeroboam. what Jer- Jeroboam does and his rationale for acting. Let's read that together in chapter 12. Jeroboam, remember, he's a guy, he's a thinker, he's, he's a creator, he gets things done. He says in verse 27, 1 Kings 12, verse 27, If this people go up to offer sacrifice in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Okay, what's he thinking here? Well, here's what he's after. He's thinking to himself, now wait a second. I don't have Jerusalem, which means I don't have the temple. So there's going to come a point in time when the people are going to go worship. I've got nothing for them to worship. If they go down to Jerusalem, I'm going to lose the kingship. Now, this was amazing. What Jeroboam fails to consider is he never secured the kingship by himself to begin with. It was God who came to Jeroboam and said, listen to what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you a nobody, a servant in the household of the king, and I'm going to make you king of most of Israel. I will give you that. It's as if Jeroboam just considered that he had done this. And so Jeroboam, spending his time trying to make sure he can secure the kingdom, actually will do the very thing that causes him to lose the kingdom. You can hear here the words of Jesus as he says, inasmuch as as a man seeks to save his life, he will what? Lose it. And inasmuch as as a man loses his life for the sake of the kingdom, he will what? Be saved. Jeroboam goes and does what seems... Unbelievable. Now remember, he knows the people have a desire to worship. I want you to hear with me from the Word of God, chapter 12, verse 28, what he does. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and he put the other in uh, Dan. Alright, let's assess this from two angles. First, how incredibly stupid this is. Second, how brilliant it is all at the same time. We'll start with the first. He set up two golden calves. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You... You would think you would at least go for like silver donkeys or copper cats. was nobody at any time scratching their heads going, bow down to a calf covered in gold. This seems familiar. If you've read the story of the Old Testament, you know this cost the people dearly. And they bowed down to golden calves. And he even has the arrogance, the audacity, to say to them exactly what Aaron said to them. Look what he said. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's exactly what Aaron said to the people when he gave them a golden calf. This is unbelievably daring. It is audacious. It's rebellious. It is wicked and evil. But folks... It is so blatant. It is so blatant that it is intentional on God's part. It is intentional because God is trying to show us something. Idolatry is ridiculous. As you'll see in the book of Ecclesiastes very soon, there's nothing new under the sun. Our contemporary sin looks just as ridiculous as ancient sin. It is a pathetic joke. Romans chapter 1 screams this loud and clear. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to them, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Our sin is not new and it is not clever. It is the height of foolishness and it looks as ridiculous as it is offensive in the sight of God. I know we often feel like we live in a world that is more evil. Folks, our world is just as sinful now as it was a hundred years ago, and it's as sinful, it was as sinful then as it was a thousand years before. We are depraved people who would bow down to a golden calf again. Instead of serving the God of the universe. So on the one hand, Jeroboam's action was incredibly ridiculous. And yet on the other hand, I've got to tell you, it's ingenious. Why? He first recognizes the deep human need for worship. And he understands that people have a tendency to gravitate towards convenience. Jeroboam understands that if he does not give the people something to worship, they will have that vacuum in their hearts filled. I say that to say it's ingenious, but guess what? There's a modern day world, in particular, modern day Europe is finding this out on the hard way. In modern-day Europe, for centuries now, the leaders have sought a plan of pure secularism by which they think if we can just rid the culture of all things religious, we can be done with it and we can move on with our modern reason. And yet what they have done, unknowingly, is actually open the door for a radical worldview called radical Islam because, hear me, We were created to worship something higher than us. And if you try to take away from people the desire to worship, we will find something to fill the vacuum. Jeroboam got that. Even pre-enlightenment man that he is, he got that. He was insightful because he recognized the human need to worship, but he was also insightful because he realized our desire for convenience will often trump our insistence on truth. Jeroboam placed one of the centers of worship in the north, in Bethel. He also put one down south in Dan. This way, the people would not have to travel far to get their fill of religion. So note this. The Israelites... We're willing to go bow down again to a golden calf if it was closer to home than actually go worship the God of the universe, their God, Yahweh. Now, I tell you that to say, I think that should strike a warning sound in our hearts. I mean, think about it. The Israelites don't have any or did not have any of the modern conveniences that you and I enjoy every day. Think of the plush seat that you're sitting on, the climate control. You know the Puritans had a huge fight. They had a lot of fights, but they had a. I uh, uh, love the Puritans. So we love the Puritans. But they had a big fight over whether it was right or not to allow heat. In the churches. This is a big deal. A lot of the old school Puritans said, uh-uh, we don't want convenience. If people come here uh, for they'll come just for the heat. <laughs> I think that's great. They were up in the north. I mean, think about it, it's Connecticut. In the winter, they had six hour services sitting on benches, and they argued about whether to have heat. People. How much more prone are we to give way to convenience over conviction if the Israelites also, without any of the conveniences we have, were prone to that? This is what Paul is after in Second Timothy when he writes this. He says, I'm going to warn you, there's coming a day when people will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll just make it easy for them and they will love it. He actually calls their ears... Tickling ears. The remainder of chapter 12 through most of 14 tells the story of Jeroboam's disobedience. And the horrible, you've got to go read. It is so sad what happens to him and his family. At the end of chapter 14, we're briefly told about the story of what happened to Rehoboam. And guess what? It sounds so familiar. 1 Kings 14:22 through 24 sums up the disobedience of Judah and Rehoboam. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked Him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all of their fathers had done. Now that's an accomplishment in Israel, for they built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. They were also uh, there were also male cult prostitutes in the land just let that fall on you they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel they did according to all the abominations of the nations that Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel remember the whole idea of Israel was that they were to be a what? A distinct people. And now it says they look no different than the very people God drove out from among them. That's chapter 14. Chapter 15 and 16 gives the story of the next six kings of Israel, two kings of Judah. Of those eight kings, all are wicked save King Asa of Judah. In fact, in Israel's existence for their entire time, you will not get... One good king. Not one good king. Chapters 17-22 through focus on Israel, not Judah. And they focus in particular on their seventh king. That's King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. Alright, I want us to look at this. There's a key piece of background. It's got to do with a conditional statement from God out of Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. Let me read this with you. So remember, this is quite a bit ago. Uh, You're talking about 500 years prior to this point. This is the statement God made through Moses. And if you will indeed obey my commandments, that's the antecedent, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, Here's a consequent. He will give the rain rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain. Then you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship Him. That's the antecedent. Consequent, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land the Lord has given you. So one of the signs of favor for the, for the nation of Israel is that God will give them rain. And one of the signs of disfavor, of curse, for the nation of Israel is God will withhold the rain. Well, now, for the nation of Israel, by the time we get to Ahab, the seventh king, we're seven uh, about 70 years in, and it's been pure disobedience. God sends the prophet Elijah to Ahab to say, guess what, you're not getting any rain for a long time. And he sends a devastating drought onto the land. Chapter 17 and 18 give witness to the devastation caused by this. Meanwhile, ironically the Israelites are spending their time worshiping a god called Baal. Or there's actually multiple, the Baals. Well, guess what? Of all the things the Baals were known for in terms of the power they were supposed to have. The power over rain. So during the biggest drought in the history of Israel, the people turned to the god of rain and worshiped Him. Nobody thought, hey, he promised us a long time ago in a conditional promise, if we disobey, there's going to be no rain. Well, after many years of drought, Elijah catches back up to Ahab. And that's a whole great... uh, Go read that uh, uh, in chapter uh, 17. It's a great uh, dialogue. Anyway... Um, my favorite part is he goes, he goes to Elijah gets ready to go to Ahab and he finds Ahab's servant and he says I got to talk uh, to Ahab and he says wait a second you want me to go tell the king that you're going to talk to him he's got a search warrant for you across the whole globe basically if you don't show up I'm a dead man And because uh, his whole thought is surely you wouldn't show up he'll kill you and Elijah looks back at him and says oh no I want to talk to him bring him He does. So they have this talk. Ahab doesn't kill him. Why? Because God wouldn't let him. And he says, You know what? I I think we should do. I I think we should have a duel between the gods, a showdown of the gods. We get one of the most incredible stories of all the Old Testament when this happens in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's dive in together. Verse 20. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. Here we go. So Ahab. I said to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am the only prophet of the Lord, left. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to both of us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord. That's Yahweh. Which they understand means our God. And the God who answers by fire he is God. And the people answered, it's well spoken. That's a good idea. So, one of, one of the things uh, that will just blows your mind in this story is the faith of Elijah. It's unbelievable. He doesn't even flinch, at least during this time. And one of the things, a backstory, and we don't have a ton of time to pursue this, but you've got to see what's happening in chapter 17 that builds that faith. God takes Elijah and he, he literally delivers to him food and water on a daily basis. Or he'll die. And Elijah learns such sweet dependence on the Lord. You know, contrary to a lot of popular teaching, God's blessings are more often found in our need than in our plenty. He gives lessons more often in the school of need than he ever holds class in the school of plenty. Moving on. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first as many as you are many. And call upon the name of the Lord your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Almost as long as a half of a cricket match. um, Saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice... False gods don't speak. The true God speaks. There is no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked him, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he is musing, or, or he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep, and he, he must be wakened. So, so the prophets of Baal set up this... Altar. They cry to their God and nothing's happening. I like how the text won't even say they danced around. It just says they limped around. And then Elijah begins mocking them, right? He, he honestly says, it's in the text, maybe your God is gone potty. That's exactly what it says there. That's what it means. Why is he mocking? It's the same reason that there's golden calves to be worshipped in Dan and in Bethel. He is showing them how ridiculous idolatry is. Idolatry is ridiculous. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until time of the offering of the oblation. There was no voice. Sad. No one answered, no one paid attention. So the people of God, I mean let that follow following years again. The people of God are dancing around an altar to false gods, crying out, cutting themselves, bleeding. And he even says this. As was their custom. This is something they did on a regular basis. Think about it. Idolatry would be funny if it weren't so sad. What are your idols? What are your idols? Young woman. That relationship is an idol and it's not helping you. It's only hurting you. Young man, you can stop looking at sexually explicit images. They aren't helping your soul. They're starving it and they're killing you. Friend, your consistent hunt for comfort and ease may comfortably send you into an eternity of hell. Sister, your anxiety over the future has not helped you and is only robbing you of enjoying the gift of the present. Brother, what has your desire for more stuff gotten you? Hasn't it just gotten you a bunch of junk and a deeper desire for more stuff? Let's stop worshiping God's that do not answer. Let's serve the only true God who has called us out of sin and darkness into life. One of the things that strikes me about the prophets of Baal is that they genuinely believed He would answer. Somehow our culture has swallowed a lie that says the content of the belief is irrelevant, so as we honestly believe it. Well, I think the bleeding, crying, dancing prophets honestly believed and were completely wrong. Ironically, we're only prone to this, or mostly prone to this, when it comes to spiritual belief. That is, the silliness that passes... For people given reasons for their spiritual choices would not pass in other areas of life. Oh, how often people toss out the phrase, but I I have a piece about it in terms of their spiritual beliefs as if that settles the question. I would love for me, I would just love for me in business with a prospective client to try this one. I think you should do business with us because the more I've thought about it, I have a piece about it. Yeah, you should give us your business. It is not going to work. I would love... Maybe I should try this. Maybe I shouldn't. Next time a client calls in and their systems have been down and they want to know what happened and how it's not going to happen again, I, I should try this. You know, I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. And I I have a piece that it's not going to happen again. See, i got a funny feeling I'll be gaining a piece of their mind and losing a piece of their business. But somehow, when it comes to religious thoughts, spiritual thoughts, people throw this down as if it's a trump card. I've got a piece about it. It's ridiculous. You can have a piece about it and find yourself in hell. The content of Your belief matters. And you've got to ground it something more, on something more than your emotions and your experience. And Jesus bumps. In chapter 19, Elijah is waiting to hear from God. And and first there comes an earthquake. And then there comes a big ball of fire. Do you remember what the text says about those? It says, God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. Instead, how does God show up? He shows up in a whisper. What is a whisper? But a word. Brothers and sisters, we need not bank on our emotions and our feelings and our experiences. God speaks in His Word. And there we can discern what is true and what is false and bank. Our lives on that. The story concludes with Elijah having the people fill up 12 buckets of water and drench the altar. Flood it! Then Elijah calls out to the Lord. There's no dancing. There's no screaming. There's no cutting. There's no bleeding. He prayed to the one true God and fire rained from heaven and soaked up all of the water in the offering Elijah had the people seize all the prophets of Baal and kill them and shortly after the drought ended and rain came the hearts of the people were temporarily and I emphasize temporarily turned towards God until they decided to disobey yet again so so What's the takeaway in all of this? Perhaps it is this. Perhaps the takeaway is, if we obey, there will be blessing. And if we disobey, there will be death and devastation. Therefore, we must hope that we obey more than we disobey. Maybe that's the takeaway. A lot of folks think that that's what Christianity teaches But let me stand before you with the Word of God in hand and tell you it's not even close. That is very close to what Islam teaches, though. I read just this week an an op-ed piece by a Muslim in the Wall Street Journal describing his faith, and he wrote this sentence that stuck out to me. I was so glad, by the way, he just summed it up so well. In the simplest sense, Islam teaches that our lives are a struggle to live a good life and refrain from bad deeds. At the end of our lives, we will be judged on whether the good deeds outweigh the bad. That's Islam. That is not Christian. Christianity does clearly teach, as I said at the beginning, if we obey, there will be blessing, and if we disobey, there will be death and devastation. But it also teaches that on its own, That statement is really, really bad news. Let me tell you why. See, the Bible, in particular the Old Testament here, is showing Adam as a representative of me and you. Adam's given a conditional statement, and what does he do? He disobeys. And then we move on to Israel. Israel is another representative of me and you. They are given dozens and dozens of conditional statements. And what do they do every single time without fail? They disobey. Adam represents me. Israel represents me. The Bible is telling me you are one who will disobey. And that's you, friend. And that's really bad news, because the principle is the principle. If you disobey, it is death and devastation. Let me be even clearer here. This is where we differ with Islam. Christians have a much worse view about the state of human beings than Islam does. Islam actually teaches there's enough things that a bad person could do good to make themselves go to heaven. And Christianity teaches it's not even close. You're all condemned to hell. Just understand that. By the way, it's a great place if you're going to witness to a Muslim to start. That really freaks them out. Freaking people out is not always the best evangelism plan, but it can be surprised how often it works. But anyway, so where's the hope? (laughs) It is so amazing. It's already a drumbeat starting in 1 Kings chapter 11. You can hear it beating. Listen to this hope. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36. God's talking and telling Jeroboam He's going to take the kingdom from Solomon and give it to him. He adds this. Yet to his son, speaking of Solomon's son, I will give one tribe. You're not getting the whole thing, Jeroboam. That David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. If you recall, God made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David that he would always have, there would always be a king on the throne for everlasting in the line of David. He promised the Messiah is coming from David's line. Psalm 89. Let me read this real quick to you. Not the whole thing. It's really long. But listen to verse 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. from the line of david in a small town called bethlehem would be born a great great grandson of david and his name would be jesus and he was the son of god we believe that god poured out his wrath over all of our disobedience on the cross of christ on jesus our savior furthermore Every single time, Jesus faced a conditional promise. Unlike Adam, unlike Israel, unlike you, He never disobeyed. He acted obediently every time. That is His perfect righteousness. So we have hope, but it's not in us. We have hope because Jesus Christ has paid the debt for our disobedience. And we have peace because we also believe that when God looks upon us, He actually sees the righteousness of Christ. So do you see? In the most incredible turn, the very conditional promise that guarantees you and I devastation and death, is now the guarantee of blessing. Because when God looks on you, He sees Christ. And in every one of those conditional promises, what does Christ do? He obeys. And with every act of obedience comes what? Blessing. We only have one hope. It is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone as the Son of God, the Son of David, our righteousness, our King.